Hello everyone, Dr. Stillman here, streaming for the second time today. If you haven't watched our testosterone webinar, Jim's testosterone webinar with me uh, from this morning, you should. It was a really good time. It was a whole two hours of very, very interesting information. And today, Clark and I are sitting down to talk about, number one, our upcoming webinar next month, July, on hair tissue mineral analysis. And um, specifically today, we wanted to talk about myths and legends with regards to calcium, which a lot of people talk about and very few people really seem to understand. So Clark, you picked this topic, take it away. I'm going to, for the record, I'm getting my calcium right here. This is my goat milk, um, chocolate milk recipe, which if you want the recipe for, you'll have to subscribe to my Substack. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, can I get that one for free actually? Um, <laughs> anyway, so calcium, um, is, uh, oft, uh, misunderstood, especially in the hair analysis space. Um, and I think this idea of calcification versus normal calcium metabolism is a very good point to enter this topic where these two, um, these two states are very different in the body. The body sort of treats these uh, two states very differently and they occur uh, for various reasons. And so when it comes to calcium, um, your body has a lot of different underlying mechanisms to control its partitioning. Uh, you know, certainly it starts kind of in the gut with uh, divalent metal transporter one, among a few other uh, transport mechanisms that the body will use to absorb and take up calcium into the system. But then post that absorptive stage, there's a lot of different things, especially hormones, um, and other signaling molecules that control where calcium gets sent. Right. And the, there's a few hormones I think that are involved that most people are vaguely aware of the adrenal hormones, thyroid hormone, and especially parathyroid hormone are very important for the, the partitioning of calcium. Not to mention vitamin D. Vitamin D as well. Very important, especially for the absorption of calcium in the gut. But there's this big uh, misnomer with calcium that too much calcium intake in the diet will lead to necessarily calcification of tissues that shouldn't be calcified at all. Right, which isn't the case. It's not the case that calcification occurs like in your heart or your kidneys or in your joints because of too much calcium in the diet. A lot of it has to do with uh, dysregulation in these underlying control mechanisms. Yes. Um, and calcification really um, is caused for two different reasons. Uh, and, and the most important reason is inflammation or tissue injury. Um, and so, and then proteins have a very high affinity or ability to bind to calcium. So this can also uh, lead to calcification of tissues as well, but it's mostly related to inflammation and tissue injury. And then those underlying mechanisms that control calcium partitioning can end up dysregulated. Like we've talked about in some of the other webinars that we've shot, you can have thyroid imbalances, you can have mm -hmm. imbalances. And, you know, those adrenal hormones uh, are responsible for, in, at least in some way, uh, for keeping calcium in solution in the blood so that it doesn't precipitate out into those places where we don't want it to be. Right. Um, but when it comes I think to the, the big picture here, it's so important for people to understand is that where the calcium goes depends upon not only 
how much calcium there is coming into the system, but also what hormones are present in the system to control that calcium. And then also what other nutrients is the body using to handle the calcium? So like, for example, iodine is a great example where if you have a low iodine intake, low iodine level, you may have suboptimal thyroid hormone levels. And we know that with suboptimal thyroid hormone levels, you get a lot of diseases of calcification, calcification of the arteries, calcification of the great vessels. You might end up with kidney stones, right? So, you know, all of these nutrients have to be present in the proper proportion to one another. And the proportionality of them is very important, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we'll see people swing, say like a high, high sodium, low potassium ratio. Those people long-term will wind up, I think, with low total body potassium, which then manifests as fatigue. And you'll help them by fixing that ratio. Right. And and uh, what you're hinting as, as well is another really important concept, which is that it's not just about calcium itself. It's about calcium in relationship to all of these other minerals and nutrients. Right. Which is critical uh, for calcium utilization. It, and, and the calcium phobia that exists out there now, especially in the alternative health space, I think is very rep reminiscent of the sodium uh, or salt phobia that was kind of rampant in like the 80s and 90s, where um, it's not necessarily a bad thing to get a sufficient or even a, a really robust sodium intake in the diet. But you want you want enough potassium. Um, and other elements, zinc, especially as well, to balance that uh, potential effect that sodium could have on blood pressure, which is where all that fear came from with sodium. You know, what's interesting about that, that element is that what I've found is that it's more to do with the quantity of salt. And I don't just mean sodium. I mean salt, any mineral to water in the diet. Right. So overwhelmingly, the people I take care of who have high blood pressure tend to be chronically dehydrated mm -hmm. and they don't drink enough water. They're constantly on their feet, on the go for their work. They forget to drink it. They prefer to drink other things. And so, you know, salt gets blamed for a problem that isn't really its fault. Right. And this is where, you know, I don't know how I would do what I do without getting a lot of data from people based on responses to forms that we use at the clinic to really understand what's their salt load, what's their water load, what kind of water are they drinking? How might that be affecting them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, couldn't agree more with that. Um, to bring it back to calcium a little bit, there are some interesting indicators on a hair analysis uh, that we can use to assess calcium uh, metabolism um, it's very hard to assess the total body calcium status because the, the bone is the main reservoir for calcium. So short, right. short of taking some bone tissue and measuring, you know, part of your bone, um, it's a difficult situation. This is sort of, um, why hair analysis is so valuable. Hair correlates with bone very highly. So oh, is that, is that's so. I didn't know that. Yes. Yes, that's kind of buried in the literature a little bit, but hair and bone correlate very well with one another. Um, and so on the hair analysis, there are multiple different patterns that we can see or view um, that would indicate pathology uh, going on with calcium. And the biggest one is calcification or what, you know, what we would call a calcium shell, which is calcium that's like really, really high on the hair test. It's 
um, you know, ideal for the calcium on the hair test is about 40 milligrams per cent. Uh, we technically define a calcium shell at like 165. So it's like, you know, four times normal, 400% of normal. And that's really indicative of an active calcification process. Mm. Um, you know, so the, but this, um, this point, I think is a very good point to also talk about bioavailability. Mm -hmm. these elements and the calcium issue <clears throat> uh, really is a great entry point into this concept where when you have very high tissue calcium or a calcification process actually going on do you supplement with calcium at that point and the answer is yes because the calcium in the hair is bio unavailable or it's reflecting a situation where calcium is being put into places where it shouldn't be. And so it kind of mimics a deficiency state in some ways, right? Where, where we would see a very low, low calcium. Um, and, and so this idea of bioavailability, you can apply to other minerals as well. And it yeah. explains why, let's say if you've got a very high tissue copper level or very high manganese, you can still require supplemental forms of those nutrients to balance other mineral levels and ratios all at the same right. time having very high uh, levels of those elements in-, in uh, Which confuses many people. It's very confusing when you first learn about it. You know, I was confused. It's like, well, how does this make sense? Like I'm supposed to take calcium when I have too much of it. But right. the distinction is, is that the calcium is not bioavailable. And so the bioavailability concept helps us to understand that calcium is being put into places it should not be. And so the implication is that calcium is not in the places that it should be, like the bones and the teeth, um, in the extracellular fluid, certainly in the brain and in the muscles. And this is one reason why you and I tend to recommend to a very significant proportion of people, if not the vast majority, lots of cooked vegetables. Yes. There's a couple of cups of greens of almost any variety are going to actually have more calcium in them than almost anything else. 100%. Yeah, the greens, the carrots, um, you know, uh, certainly, I think raw dairy is possibly one of the best foods that exists out there. So if you sure, it, um, you know, if you tolerate it, which is a really big caveat. <clears throat> it is definitely I used to be one of those people that didn't tolerate dairy until, you know, I was on a program myself for many years and uh, healed those uh, food intolerances. But oh, really? Yeah. And actually, it's very interesting, because those food intolerances that I had developed in my early 20s, mm -hmm. kind of out of nowhere, very strange. Um, they went away after I eliminated a bunch of lead. Completely. Um, well, there's some very interesting mechanisms I think that we could talk about with respect to calcium and lead. Bring it on. Since lead substitutes for calcium in many different places in the body and lead causes tissue injury and inflammation. So when it comes to calcium in the gut, this is a, a very little known fact, but calcium is actually maintaining the structural integrity of the small intestinal villi cells in the, in the small intestine. So right where, where people know that leaky gut occurs is in, that, in those villi cells that get mm. damaged. So calcium is used to maintain the structural integrity of those cells. Lead can replace calcium in that tissue compartment cause massive inflammation. And in my opinion, really is one of the leading causes of leaky gut. 
you don't hear that every day. You do not, but it's part of the reason why uh, there is brain swelling or edema in acute phase lead exposure in the brain because lead disrupts the tight junctional gaps in the brain as well. And this is why heavy metals are so bad and why yes. doing things like injecting them is very questionable. I would, I could not agree more with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Without oh boy. So calcium, um, what else should we talk about with calcium? Any of the big points you want to make? Yes. I would say when it comes to calcium, uh, sort of going back to this point of the interactions that exist between the elements, I think this is another really interesting mm. uh, thing that we could talk about, but calcium interacts, uh, nutritionally with magnesium. That's a big one, but many other elements as well. Um, calcium interacts with sodium, potassium, uh, zinc, manganese, um, phosphorus, how does it interact with them and copper? So, uh, generally speaking, calcium and magnesium are antagonistic. Zinc and calcium are antagonistic. Iron and calcium are antagonistic. One of the main minerals, calcium and phosphorus are antagonistic, but it's a little, um, it's not as clear. Some of the elements are antagonistic in certain tissue compartments, but they're also synergistic in other ways. Like calcium and phosphorus at the level of the, of the uh, gut are antagonistic. But in the bone, calcium and phosphorus are incorporated into the bone and act in synergy in that tissue. Right. So the, you know, the, the interactions component or piece of all of this is complicated enough as it is. I don't know if we want to go down that road right now. Um, you know, but when it comes to calcium synergists, the biggest one that we can actually use to affect like low calcium status is copper. And now this is one of the this is one of the situations where it is actually appropriate to use supplemental copper is in very low calcium states or especially when calcium and magnesium are low relative to sodium and potassium. You can use the, yeah, the fast oxidizer picture. Exactly. And that's it sort of explains why some people respond really well to copper mm. and why some people don't respond well to copper. Um, it usually is related to calcium status. That is fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. So when you have a very high tissue calcium, uh, those people do really poorly on supplemental copper. And it's for that reason that copper will drive up calcium in the tissues. And if the calcium and magnesium on a hair chart are really uh, elevated relative to sodium and potassium, it'll make you feel much worse taking that copper. You know, so those are those are just the nutritional elements that interact with calcium. The heavy metals also interact with calcium as well. And, you know, we hinted at this before. Lead is the main one, uh, but cadmium and aluminum also interact with and substitute for calcium where there is either calcification or just low levels of calcium um, in the bone and in other places as well. Right. This is why having an optimal vitamin D level is very important. Very important, yes. I also think it's worth noting that, you know, when we hit the cell with red and infrared light water, it creates the exclusion zone, which can push things out and create cellular energy, which is responsible for, you know, really cellular bioenergetics, which you need in order to get rid of these bad things. Yes. This is why and 
we never just look at the minerals. We always look at the minerals and the environment and the lifestyle and the lighting and all the rest of it. One really interesting fact um, is that something I've noticed clinically, other practitioners, including like Dr. Wilson and others who are trained mm -hmm. by him, is that the use of a, a near infrared sauna can in some ways normalize calcium metabolism because of the way uh, that the that type of sauna will improve the function of your adrenal hormones. That's fascinating. I've never heard that. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting, uh, you know, thing, but also a good rationale to use that type of sauna. Hmm. I'm going to have to think more about that. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, so calcium is a lot more complicated than, you know, people are, are certainly letting on right. alternative health. <clears throat> And yeah, and I think it's worth saying that the, the acceptable intake for calcium for good health is remarkably wide. Yes. I mean, you'll get people eating grams a day and you'll get people who barely break a thousand. But if your vitamin D is adequate, you'll absorb more of what you're taking in. And if your exertion is not improper or not out of proportion to the calcium that you need, you know, people forget that calcium is largely stored in muscle. And so if you want to put on five, 10 pounds of muscle, you got to eat a lot of calcium and you have to absorb it. You have to put it away in those cells. Mm. And so this is one of the things that, you know, we see constantly is that people will not eat enough food to gain the muscle mass they want to gain. Right. Um, you know, another really interesting uh, fact is that vitamin D, you know, um, vitamin D and calcium sort of get vilified in, in, in similar circles for the mm -hmm. same reason, you know, but vitamin d is also a zinc and other mineral synergist mm. at the level of the gut so if we understand that and then let's put the pieces of the puzzle together zinc and calcium are antagonistic to one another so it's not strictly the case that more vitamin d or sufficient vitamin d is going to lead to you know this dramatic increase in calcium that's going to harm you because those other elements are also being absorbed and sort of balance out uh, the calcium intake. So yeah. that, that I think is very important, but vitamin D, um, you know, gets vilified for that same reason. And there's just, there's also interesting research looking at low vitamin D states and calcification is even, if not as much likely, but more likely calcification is m more likely to occur in low vitamin D states than in sufficient states yeah that's and that's yeah, I mean, you see people i mean you know in the conventional medical world you'll, you'll see people with low vitamin d levels who've never taken it and must have had low levels for decades who have lots of calcification so it's not as simply about how much calcium comes into the system right and and if you look at like um weston price's work and the maasai you know their estimates ranging from like three thousand to five thousand milligrams a day of intake of calcium in those diets because they're they're really subsisting on meat and milk. Yeah. And there's very little evidence to suggest that they ever really had significant issues with calcification. So from Remarkable. the anecdotal, yeah, from the anecdotal perspective yeah. in, in that regard, that is, um, you know, it's definitely more complicated. Definitely. On that note, we are going to jump off and grab and, and make some uh, recordings, some webinars for the upcoming HDMA course we're going to be releasing at the end of July. Make sure you're on my newsletter at stillmanwellness.com if you want updates on that. Thanks, everyone, for watching and have a great day. Clark, any closing thoughts? 
Uh, no, I think I, I hit everything I wanted to. Excellent. Yep. 